This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. All right. Did anybody bring your Bibles tonight that did not have them last week? Anybody bring your Bible tonight that didn't have it last week? Awesome. Kobe? Hit you up with an Elevate Notebook. Anybody else? Sweet. Great job, man. Anybody else? It's your last week to have brought your Bible? Going once? Going twice? Yeah? I'll hit you with one anyway. Oh, no. You have fun untangling up there. We have the opportunity to dig in. Man, I've really enjoyed this series through Matthew. How about you guys? Have you all enjoyed studying Jesus on a whole different level? Does anyone actually remember the very first week when we talked about the genealogy? And we saw how much history you could pack into one genealogy. Anybody? Come on, show me your hands. Anybody? The genealogy? Anyone here for the whole thing? Awesome. Good job. Good job. You made it. Who knew a 20-week series would take from, I don't know, pre-hurricane until now. This has been fun. But we're coming to the conclusion. This is where everything collides, converges. This is where the center of the puzzle is filled in. Last week we talked about the death of Jesus Christ. When all of creation held its breath, it responded by quaking. The ground itself shook at his death. The sun turned dark. The bodies of those who had died came out of graves. The curtain in the temple split in half from top to bottom. Nature itself, people that didn't even know anything about the Messiah or met Jesus before are giving their lives to him and declaring him the Son of God. There is this shockwave from the cross that affects every realm in existence. And tonight we get to talk about the resurrection. Imagine that you knew, apparently, your very, very old grandfather, who, let's say, was a soldier of World War II. Are you with me? Does anyone actually know, did meet your grandfather who was a soldier in World War II? Maybe? Mine was. Yeah? That's awesome. Now, let's say your grandfather used to blabber on about his old war stories. And one of the stories he would tell often was that he was at the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that significant event that pulled the United States into World War II. And he gives you explicit detail about what happened. And he even tells you about certain ships that were sunk. Now, your grandfather has long passed away, but you still actually have his old war journal. And the pages are yellow, and you see it's scratched in handwriting, and you can read about the very details he'd tell you about time and time again. And then on the news comes a story, and all the news stations seem to be picking it up, that the bombing of Pearl Harbor all this time was a hoax. Franklin D. Roosevelt had created this lie because he wanted to manipulate the United States people into joining the war. And here you sit with the journal in your lap and you have a decision to make. Who are you going to believe? The worldwide news network or the journal in your lap? 
I think for me that would be an easy answer. When we approach the Bible, we are not approaching a single book attesting to itself. We are reading multiple journals of multiple people whose stories beautifully coincide. And even attests to as many as 500 more people that saw Jesus alive after he died and was executed on a Roman cross. And they have been passed down with great clarity and great accuracy through the decades and millennia. That's what we hold in our hands. Something valuable. And that's just the beginning. A skeptic might still say, nope, I still can't buy it. A man rose himself from the grave. Someone with this Messiah complex rose himself from the grave. That's cool. Hang out. Because we're not done yet. As we approach the end of Jesus' life, he has this last supper with his disciples. And he calls a shot. He says, this is what's going to happen. Four times in his ministry, he talked about that he was going to be executed and raised from the grave three days later. We're going to read one of them. He calls a shot. He says when, how, where, why, and by whom his death would come. He's trying to symbolize that this is not an accident. And it's not something that's happening to him. He is going willingly out of the purpose of his will because of his great love. And then he's executed. An innocent king was exchanged for a guilty criminal. We talked about that last week. And this week is that king, King Jesus, has total and complete victory. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Jesus gave all of himself Jesus was a steamroller, a juggernaut in his purpose, and he left nothing undone. The first time that Jesus would prophesy his death was in Matthew 16, 21 through 25, and he gives his mission. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now you see, If this happened, if Jesus raised from the grave, it's actually way more significant than just the bombing at Pearl Harbor because it affects way more people. And it's on a scale that's lengthier than the human life but into eternity. This is enormous. Those who claimed to have witnessed Jesus' resurrection were tortured and executed. And it's not because they wouldn't renege a system of beliefs. We sat down and we invented a religion. It's that they wouldn't back down that they saw the risen Savior. That's what they died for. That's what they attested to. And their faith blanketed the planet and changed the course of human history. Do you realize all the differences that Christianity has made on the world, even aside from spiritual? Who founded some of the largest and first hospitals anywhere? Christians. Hospices, orphanages, soup kitchens, universities that became Ivy League universities, Christians. Over and over and over again, they're the ones that are pressing things forward, that are changing the world around them. Did you know that the public school system was initially designed by the reformers so that everyone, rich or poor, had the ability to read so they could read the Bible for themselves? We have public schools because of Christians. Christianity has changed everything, but it doesn't stop there. 
more than any effect that we could point at. If the resurrection happened, there's still a more significant truth, and that is an eternal truth. And every one of us have to come to a fork in the road. Whether you're an atheist or a religious person or this faith or that faith, every one of us, unless we're very foolish, have to deal with whether or not we accept or deny the resurrection of Jesus. As certain as those who have gone before us have died, we will die too. You can go to any graveyard and you can look at all the stones representing all the people that were your age and absolutely sure they were never going to die. And if we are all going to confront that, we are going to meet death in one of two ways. We will confront the end with one of two attitudes. And we will confront death. We will feel the cold climbing up our limbs as our systems shut down. We will have that last flicker of the ember of our spirit, of our life, begin to wane. And as we slip towards death, there are two ways we'll confront it. Number one, for those who have made yourself your own God your whole life, As you meet death, you can pray to yourself that God doesn't exist. And you can sit in the terror that you're wrong. Because it would be a scary thing to have spent your whole life making yourself God and encounter a holy God who you rejected. Or two, you can close your eyes knowing you will soon be in the warm arms of Jesus Christ. For to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. What a joy. What a hope. What an expectation that changes the way we live now. Not just the last moments of our lives. Because all of a sudden, what we're living for now changes. It's not for something shallow. It's for something eternal. It changes everything. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. I'm challenging, elevate, I'm challenging you in here. Are you going to be the kind of people that live with no reserves and no retreats and no regrets? This is what Paul has to say about the resurrection. He's defending that we will resurrect someday through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 21. You can follow along with me. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that God, we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ has only come to change this life, then pity us. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
So if this event didn't happen, Paul lines up several things. We are still evil. If Christ didn't raise from the grave, we're misrepresenting God. That is, if there is a God. If he didn't raise from the grave, our faith and evangelism are wasted. If he did not raise from the grave, this brief, shallow, meaningless life is all there is. And you never had a purpose. If he has not been raised from the dead, all who have died before us are gone. We will never see them again. And if he has not been raised from the grave, our eternal future is hopeless. We are most to be pitied. But if it happened, if it happened, it changes everything. If it happened, it proves that there is a God and it verifies that Jesus Christ is that God. It proves that all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is validated as true. It proves that there is a heaven and there is a hell. It proves that Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished what he said they would. If Jesus raised from the grave, it verifies that unbelievers have an assurance of hell and believers have an assurance of heaven. If he raised from the grave, the citizens of his kingdom will also resurrect at his return. That's good news. It changes everything. The grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't keep him down. Hallelujah to our God. Jesus took back the keys that we handed Satan with our sin, the keys of death, and he snatched them back, completely in control. So let's look at Matthew's testimony. This is Matthew's journal of what happened. His eyewitness testimony. Are you guys ready to dig in? At the end of Jesus' death, at the foot of the cross were several women, and they're important to Matthew's story. Those women were Mary, Mary Magdalene. Jesus casted seven demons out of her, and she followed Jesus as a disciple ever since. Also, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, who is just going to be called the other Mary. And then you have the mother of James and John who totally disappears from the story. But these two Marys are critical for Matthew's apologetics. Matthew 27, 57. Let's get going. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. This guy was on the Sanhedrin. He was incredibly wealthy. And he was like this low-key, undercover follower of Jesus. He didn't want to ruin his reputation. But something about the cross, despite Jesus dying, he came out as a Jesus follower. You'd think that the opposite would happen. He follows Jesus, Jesus died, and he's like, backing out of that one. But instead, it's the death of Jesus that turns his whole heart to proclaim himself a follower of Jesus and gives Jesus his own grave. A really, really wealthy one. Matthew 27, 58. Let's keep going. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut out of a rock. Then he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Went away. There's like a finality. Everyone's just going home. They unexpectedly reach the last chapter of the book and they're, they're having to close the cover way earlier, earlier than they thought they would. And the disciples that stuck around, like John and the women, have an entirely different story. 
Check this out. Matthew 27, 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. They watched this all go down, sitting opposite the tomb. It shows like their, their unparalleled love for Jesus, their loyalty. Even in the Messiah's death, they follow him. They make him their Lord. And it's important to his readers, pay attention right now, it's important to Matthew that his readers recognize that these women saw the grave closed because they're going to be there when the grave opens and it's empty. And there's no reason that the grave was open in between. Are you following me? They are part of Matthew saying, no, there's no way anything else could have happened except a resurrection. They saw it closed. And they were the ones who saw it open. And Jesus was gone. Then we get this great part two, part, uh, two-part story of the Roman soldiers. And it's interesting because they also proved Jesus' resurrection in their own way. Matthew 27, 62, let's keep going. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Now, Matthew is on purpose. He's writing to me and you. He's writing to his readers. And he's trying to say, I'm going to debunk your skepticisms as they come to you. Because one of the first things that we're going to say as a reader is, I can't believe that a guy resurrected, so I bet his disciples came and stole the body. And so Matthew's going to go, wait, wait, wait. Let me show you how that can't be a thing. So what does Pilate do? He says to them, you have a guard of soldiers Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You see, the chief priests have their own contingent of Roman soldiers. These aren't rent-a-cops like you see at the mall. These are Roman soldiers. They are trained in the phalanx system of crushing their enemies. These are the guys that went through blood, sweat, and tears to get where they were. Highly trained guys. And they've been assigned to the high priest to do their bidding, to protect the temple, to be bodyguards for the priests. And Pilate says, you have my soldiers, assign them as you want, and seal the stone. Further, the stone, as they sealed it, was just a soft clay or wax seal with a Roman, Roman emblem pressed on it. Why would that divert anybody? Because... As grave robbers come through and they see the Roman seal on a grave, that's like this, okay, to the next grave. You break that seal, you bring the full wrath of the Roman authority down on yourself. Like, no, I'm not messing with that grave. And you see every other grave for the poorer people, you still have to be pretty wealthy. It was like a, a stone that was like a cork and you'd plug the entrance with it. And it was... There, primarily to keep animals from getting into the grave. But this one was a huge stone that you would have to roll over it. And the point of this stone, for the more wealthy, was not to keep animals out. It was to keep people out. It was to dissuade anyone with less than a handful of people 
from trying to break in and steal whatever this rich person had. What is Matthew saying? He's saying, guys, they already thought that we might have tried to steal the body and they made it impossible for us. What? We, the 11 disciples who peed ourselves when the soldiers showed up and we went running into the woods? What do you think we did? We have two swords. We have 11 guys and two swords. What are we going to do? Are we going to do our own 11-man phalanx and chase the Roman soldiers out of the garden? Like, what did you expect us to do? We're all hiding out, hoping that the same people that killed Jesus don't come after us. It was, Peter was a great example who got chickened out by a little servant girl. These disciples were not in the mindset to go tackle soldiers in the dark. They were hiding out. There was no way. Matthew is trying to debunk every argument that we might bring as he tells a story. So the grave is well guarded. And then this happens. Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Gandalf came over the mountain. Sorry, y'all. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he laid. This sight petrified the soldiers, whether they passed out or they were just stunned. I don't know. But what I do know is that while the soldiers laid there motionless, the angel comforted the women. Hey, don't be afraid. I know the reason you're here. Let me show you this. You see, this angel came down to roll the stone away, not to let Jesus out. It was so that witnesses could see in. Jesus was gone. What, the creator of heavens and earth can't exit a tomb after he raised himself from the dead? No, the women saw the stone move. And he was already gone. So you have eyewitnesses, the perfect eyewitnesses. And the angel tells them to go and tell the apostles. Matthew 28, 7. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. Peter, John, Matthew, and the others are going to receive testimony by firsthand account witnesses. And the angel even confirmed the meeting place that Jesus brought up at the Last Supper. So they, those two Marys, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So these women are like heading out of the garden. They're women on a mission. Get out of the way. And then their faithfulness and loyalty is rewarded. They encounter Jesus. And I love it. The word greetings there is this really relaxed, low-key. It's like Jesus said, hi. Hi, guys. How y'all doing? It's this really familiar 
greeting. Think about it. These women falling down at the feet of their Lord are the first to worship with the full scope of Jesus' redemptive work. Up until now, they may have celebrated God for his promises or the law or the great works of the Old Testament. They may have celebrated that Jesus was doing incredible miracles. But this was the first time that anyone had worshipped their Lord with the context and the full force of Jesus' redemptive mission of death and resurrection. Elevate, let's not wait until eternity to fall at the feet of Jesus with gratefulness and joy for what he's done for us. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, while they're going, so you have, the women are like stepping over the guards, and as they're going, a few of the guards get up, and they run to tell the chief priests what happened. They don't run to Pilate, because they might be executed for failing at their job. They run to the chief priests. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And get this. This is a lie that tells the truth. It's so interesting. And when they had assembled, this is the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who ultimately were behind betraying Jesus and having him crucified, when they assembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day, to Matthew's day. Don't miss this. The first thing that had to have taken place, the guards told the chief priests all that happened. This angel came down. There was shining light. There was this earthquake. The angel pushed the rock out of the way. It was wild. It was nothing like we'd ever seen before. You saw that too. I saw that too. We've never seen anything like it. The chief priests probably had the first and weightiest report of the resurrection happening. These are unbiased soldiers telling the story compared to hysterical women that the disciples are going to hear. The chief priests had seen all of Jesus' miracles they had all the, prof- the prophecies fulfilled in front of them, and they have unbiased, first-hand witnesses that an angel rolled the stone away and Jesus was gone. And they chose to begin a lie because they still rejected Jesus. You might be in this room and you think to yourself, I'll believe if. If God will finally answer this prayer. If God will just speak to me. If I get to see a miracle, I'll believe. And we can tell right here from these chief priests, we can tell right here about the human heart that if your heart is hard, if the Lord is not already doing a work in you, you will not believe no matter what you see. No matter what voice you think you hear, what chill bumps you think you get from a worship service. If your heart is hard, there won't be anything that changes your mind except the work of the Holy Spirit. And then this decision of these high and holy men was bribery.
And they have the soldiers tell. I love how Matthew does this. Matthew reports the soldiers' story because it is a lie that tells the truth. Let me give you a silly example. If this is stupid, just let it go. That's fine. Forget about it. But this helps me. Let's say one of you stole my phone and you started texting my wife. And you're like, ha ha, this is Dominic. Hi, how are you? And you're just being goofy, right? Texting back and forth. And maybe Jackie gets suspicious because it doesn't sound, you know, like your grammar is terrible or something, you know? And she, says, she texts back and says, okay, prove to me that you're Dominic, my husband. And you know me a little bit. You've been to my office and you're like, you text back and you're like, I love Rocky because he's a talented fighter. And Jackie goes, ha! It is not you. Dom does not like Rocky because he's a talented fighter. Rocky's a horrible fighter. You would be busted. Your lie gives way to the truth. Matthew knows this. He knows that Roman soldiers, that if they're caught sleeping, they'll be executed. If they fail at their mission, they take shifts throughout the night. Their job is to guard through the night, taking shifts. They're not going to like high-five and be like, y'all, let's get a quick nap in. No. These guards didn't fall asleep. These guards weren't overwhelmed by the apostles. Let's say for a second they did fall asleep. For the sake of argument, the guards fell asleep. How could they tell you that the disciples stole the body? How do they know? They were sleeping. How would they sleep through these guys rolling a stone out of the way and carrying the body out? No. It is ludicrous. It's a lie that gives way to the truth. And Matthew is saying a phrase, up until this day, this is the rumor going around, because he's poking the phrase. And he's saying, every time you hear this, let it just remind you that the lie reveals the truth. These soldiers had to be paid to lie to make themselves look like idiots. It's crazy. So I want to give you a handful of arguments about the resurrection. A lot of people throughout history have tried to disprove it. And I want to give you the four best arguments that people have against the resurrection. Let's say Jesus didn't resurrect you've got to come out with, you have to come up with an alternative argument. And maybe one of these four is the one that you would come up with. So the first, and I'll start with probably the least likely, and I'll go to the most likely. The first is called the swoon argument. This is the idea that Jesus came really close to death, so much so that he passed out, it was a hard time to find the pulse, and they put him in the grave, and somehow in the grave... He comes back to consciousness. This is the swoon theory. He didn't actually die, and he was able to make it out. There are nine reasons this isn't true. I'll give you three of them. The first one is that Jesus is not going to survive a Roman crucifixion. They were experts at killing. In fact, if a soldier allowed a man who is sentenced to death to escape, that soldier would be then executed. John was an eyewitness to seeing, this is the second one, blood and water pour out of his ribcage. To make sure he was dead, they speared him in the heart under his ribcage. And blood and water pouring out, as a doctor can tell you, is evidence that the lungs have collapsed. He's dead. Also, had he simply resuscitated, how is he going to move the stone and overcome Roman guards? 
That's ridiculous. The second one, the second argument, is that the disciples wanted to create a fable. They wanted to teach morality and teach righteousness, so they made up a character, a legend about this guy named Jesus so they could just teach morality. They weren't necessarily lying. They're just coming up with an Aesop's fable kind of thing. There are six reasons this can't be true. I'll give you one. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says, we were not intending to make a myth, but to give eyewitness testimony. So there you go. The third one, and this is so stupid. The third one is that they had a hallucination that Jesus had resurrected. They wanted so badly to believe that they actually created a figment of their imagination of Jesus coming back. There are 13 reasons this can't be true. I'll give you three of them. The first one is that a hallucination happens in an individual's head. You don't have seven people see the same thing, let alone 500 at one time. Number two, they touched his hands. They put their fingers in the hole in his side. They ate and they drank with Jesus. You don't have lunch with a hallucination. Or maybe you could, but everybody else thinks you're stupid. Number three, the apostles would never have believed a hallucination if Jesus' corpse was still in the tomb. They never had a corpse. And number four, probably the most common one, the one Matthew has been actively working against is the conspiracy or the hoax. The disciples got a hold of the body, they got it out, and they propagated the lie that Jesus rose from the grave so they could continue what their dead Messiah intended to do. There are eight reasons this can't be true. I'll give you four of them. Number one, the disciples underwent a massive character shift. They went from hiding in homes, in shadows, trying not to be spotted, to the people that would march out into the sunlight and preach Jesus to everyone. Something happened that they went from wimps to lions. Number two, there is no earthly motive for this kind of lie. Like what? Did they get a bunch of money for lying about Jesus resurrecting? Did they get a whole bunch of extra chicks? Yeah. Did they get power, authority? Were they set up with big houses? No. They got torture and suffering and starvation. They got cut out of cities and stoned, run out of times, towns. They were separated from their families. Why on earth would they continue a lie like this unless they're standing witness to something they actually saw? Why? Number three, the very people that hated Jesus the most had an easy mission of nothing more than producing a body. That's all they had to do. They had Roman soldiers at their disposal. Where are 11 nobodies who are right now hiding going to stash a body that they can't easily uncover or turn over? Where did the body go? And the very people that hated Jesus the most that could easily have turned it all over and shown it as an empty lie couldn't do it. Didn't even try. Because Jesus raised from the grave. And then, I love number four. It's one I hadn't thought about before. 
of those disciples that were martyred, which was all of them except John, but he still was tortured, only one of them had to break. That's it. Only one of the many, many disciples who saw Jesus alive, of the five, more than 500, only one had to give in. And the whole thing would have been flipped over and thrown out. And they stood for something they couldn't deny to their death. No one dies for a lie. Nothing proves sincerity like martyrdom. The truth of what they saw was more important than death. And the final objection that someone might bring to you is they'll say, well, I read all four Gospels. And you know what? There's differences between the Gospels. Some say two women went. Some say three. Some say one. We have like this, we're not so sure about this detail or that detail. But if someone brings that up, you really need to turn around and say, really? Are we going to say that these minor discrepancies upset the whole theme of what they're trying to say? It doesn't matter how many women went to the tomb. What matters is that Jesus rose from the grave and four out of four Gospels say that. And 500 people saw him alive. So it doesn't really matter like, about these little details. In fact, genuine historians look at that and they say, no, this is exactly what four different people would write. They would write from different perspectives. They would write from different places. They would have different purposes. Of course, they wouldn't say exactly the same thing. The truth which the apostles, the Pharisees, and 500 other people couldn't deny is one, the empty tomb, and two, Jesus' appearance. It's not the intellectually honest thing to do, to deny that, to, to say that nothing happened. No matter where you stand, you have to accept that something happened that flipped the world over and is still turning things over. It rocked the world. It changed the culture. It propelled the greatest displays of love and sacrifice the world has ever seen. And it's had more influence than any leader, any government, any war, any happening that has ever taken place. Matthew 28. Let's keep going. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, they're being obedient, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But catch this. But some doubted. The eleven disciples. You know what that Matthew's trying to say? Hey, we didn't buy the story easy either. It took a lot to convince us too. We're not just like so ready to believe something that we just buy anything. No. We had to see it with our own eyes. We had to put our fingers in the holes of his hands. Verse 18. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who has all authority? Not a rhetorical question. Who has all authority? Who has all authority? Do we have authority? No, Jesus has all authority. Anything that we are commissioned to do is through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through Jesus' work. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, Trinity citing, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always 
to the end of the age. The kingdom of heaven has been established. The entrance into his kingdom has been made. And there are many that God is calling from every tongue and every people group. And it's not their job to save. It's their job to be obedient and to be sowers and to scatter seed. I love how Jesus closes. I love how Matthew closes. He says, I'm with you to the end of the age, which is a perfect bookend. Because he opened with an angel telling Mary, he is Emmanuel, which means. And it closed with Jesus saying, and I am with you. Wherever you go to the end of time, I'm with you. There's a young man born at the end of the 1800s named William Borden. Borden, that's right. He was born to his parents who founded the Borden Dairy Company. You know, like Elsie the cow, milk. That was this guy. So he's born into this really wealthy family. His mom gives her life to Jesus and starts taking him to church. Soon, he gives his life to Jesus. Now, when he graduated, before going to college, his parents gave him an enormously cool gift because they had the money to do it. They gave him a trip around the world. And he had a traveling partner. His traveling partner was this preacher missionary. And they went around the world together and they visited all these exotic countries and exotic places. And one of the things that William Borden never knew about before was a thing that they used to call then called heathenism. And it's the idea that there are entire people groups and there's not a single witness for Jesus among them. And his heart was drawn to the Muslims of China, a very difficult culture to share Jesus with, and even a difficult place to get to physically for where they were inland. And he went home from this graduation trip with a call on his life to go back to China and minister to these Muslims there. So he went to college and he graduated with his degree, and then he went to Princeton Theological Seminary so he could be educated in Scripture. And after he graduated, he moved to Cairo, Egypt, so he could learn Arabic. He was going through all of these steps, but he constantly had his focus on his calling from the Lord. And he moves to Egypt, and he's determined, I'm learning Arabic, and then I'm going to China. And shortly after arriving, He's diagnosed with spinal meningitis. And 19 days after setting foot in Egypt, he dies. But there's two things that he left behind. The first was his will. Because he had inherited from his family much over a million dollars. And every bit of it was designated to missions and Christian organizations. But two was his Bible. And under the opening leaf, of his Bible, he had written the date that he had declared to his family he would not be taking the family business. And he wrote the date, and under the date, he wrote, I want to make sure I get it right, no reserves. I'm not holding on to anything. I'm letting go of my entire inheritance, my entire life. It belongs to Jesus. Here's the date. I made this decision. No reserves. And then later in his Bible, it's written, no retreats. And then days before he would die, no regrets. You see, Jesus lived this way. 
He lived and died giving everything, holding nothing back for himself. He faced his enemies and he faced his death with no retreats. And he resurrected from the grave, having left nothing undone for the sake of those he loved. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he was raised. Let's keep reading. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them all the commandments that I've given you. Go. Jesus has left us with a call to live with no reserves to turn our eyes forward towards his kingdom with no retreats and to live with no regrets, to die facing death with an attitude of hope. Let's get real. Those of us who have called on Jesus as our savior, we are disciples of disciple makers who were disciples, of other disciple makers who were disciples of other disciple makers, following this chain link all the way back in time to those 11 who stood on the mountain with Jesus. We would not know him if they hadn't obeyed Jesus. No preserves, no retreats, no regrets. Oh, that we would have the joy of being the chain link for somebody else. That we would be able to follow in his footsteps as he goes before us to love on someone else. That they can live in the hope and the joy and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Elevate, will you be the link for someone else? I've got two challenges for you, and they're simple and obvious. Can I the leaders come up front? We're going to pray together in a few minutes. The first one is there, if there's anyone in here who has not stepped down from the throne of your heart and surrendered the throne of your heart to the one who the throne was made for, abdicate that throne tonight and say, Jesus, you are King Jesus. You are the Lord of all creation, and I am your creation. You are the Lord of my heart. You're the Lord of my past. You're the Lord of today, and you're the Lord of my future. I challenge you to do that. And you can do that in your seat. You can do that with one of the leaders. You can do that tonight. But I'm challenging you, don't wait. Don't wait. My second challenge is that you will pick up the calling of Jesus to go. To go across 
the room, to go across the cafeteria, to go across the street, to go across town, to be willing to go across the nation or across borders, that your life is surrendered. That in whatever occupation that you're called to, whether it's in the oil field or auto mechanics or plumber, electrician, whatever God calls you to do, that you're going to be willing to go with those tools and talents. I challenge you to go. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. The leaders are up here to pray. And there's several different things you might come for prayer for. One, maybe you want to give your life to Jesus tonight. Yes! Welcome to the fam. But two, maybe there's someone in your life that you would like to know Jesus. Come and pray with them that the Lord would give you creativity, that the Lord would go before you in their life and empower you to go. Come up and pray with the leaders for that person for salvation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for defeating sin and death. Death through your resurrection. There is no explanation except that you defeated the grave. And you are now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for your people and through the power of your Holy Spirit, pushing your kingdom forward and walking with us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, prick hearts tonight. Bring to our minds, everyone in this room, bring to our minds someone that doesn't know you yet. And begin to press on us to pray for them every day without fail.
Lord, we lock eyes every day with a dying world who will meet death with fear and without purpose. Oh, Lord, the dying world hopes that they can stir meaning in their lives while they're still alive because they don't see anything on the other side of death. Father, call them. Reach out to them. Lord, all of those that we've lifted up to you in prayer, let them not know peace until they've encountered you, the Prince of Peace. Pursue them with the hounds of heaven. Lord, so that their lives are full of purpose, but so much more that their lives give you glory. Lord, that they walk in repentance to where money or sex or drugs or the next party, the next high, the next car, the next house, whatever it is, Lord, that they live for is shown to be as shallow as it is, but to know you, the King of Kings, the creator of all the universe, who loved us so much that you would climb down from your throne and put on weakness of flesh and come to us out of your love to trade places with us who deserved death. Lord, call them to know your love for the sake of their good and the sake of your glory that you are known in all the world that your name is carried not in vain but with praise let our hallelujahs join all of creation because of what you're doing in hearts tonight let there be missionaries that meet people groups that do not have a representative of Jesus already. Because of what you're doing in people's hearts tonight, that people's worlds are changed right here in Homa, Louisiana. Because of what you're doing in people's hearts tonight, there are salvations that we will live eternally with you, giving you glory for all of who you are together. Thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing tonight. The whole earth is full of your glory, O Lord of hosts. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you will bless every man and woman of God in this room. That you will lead them to you day after day after day. We love you, Lord. We give you our hearts. We give you this evening. And we surrender into your hands all those that we prayed for. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus. Jesus.